Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ryan Nobles. I'm Rebecca Berg. And I'm Harry Enton. And this is The Forecast with Harry Enton. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are almost there. Election Day is in sight, and we are so glad that you've decided to join us. It's happening. I mean, people are getting ready to go to the polls. We are wrapping up our run to Election Day with a few key house races. We're going to talk today about races in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. We're going to go back to coal country, but this time we're going to talk about a Senate race happening there and pot exclusive, a forecast on a governor's race. This one out in Kansas, I think one of the more interesting governor's races happening in the country. But here we go. For the final time before the vote comes in, Harry Enton, what is your final forecast? Who brought the drum set for the drum So the final forecast in the House is basically what we've seen all along. We expect that Democrats will, in fact, gain the majority. We think it's probably going to be somewhere them earning 225 to 230 seats. Obviously, they need 218 in order to win control. Look, the margin of error is wide enough that we could see Democrats not gaining the majority. Um, At the same point, we could see Democrats with massive gains, 40 plus, 45 plus, 50 plus, just depending exactly how those close seats end up going. In the Senate, it's a different ballgame altogether. Look, Democrats have had a bad map this entire cycle, despite a good national environment. The best precise, accurate forecast we can give at this point is that Republicans do pick up a seat in the United States Senate. But again, the margin of error is wide enough that we shouldn't be surprised if Republicans do significantly better than that. Instead of picking up one seat as we forecast, they could pick up two, three, or four. Or if it's a great night for Democrats, and let's say they go down to Texas and somehow win there with Beto O'Rourke, and then they pick up um, an additional seat or two, we could see Democrats gaining control in that body. So there's still some things to be determined, but overall, I think Democrats are favored in the House, Republicans in the Senate, and then finally, in the governor's races, we think that Democrats are gonna pick up a lot of governorships. Right now, uh, Republicans have 33. We think that that number could shrink all the way down to the mid-20s. And although Republicans are slightly more favored than Democrats hold a majority of governorships, a majority of U.S. citizens will be under Democratic governors because Democrats will do well in the big states like California, New York, Illinois, so on and so forth. Before we get into the races that we're going to talk about, Harry, I want you to talk about something you and I were talking about off the air, and that is the definition of a wave election. And I thought it was interesting what you were telling us off air is that, you know, there's this perception that a wave election means that so many more people from one party vote versus so many people from another party. But when you break it down, I mean, most of these races are within a couple of points. Is it really just about how these races break? Yeah, I mean, that to me is that in a wave election, it's not that one side wins all, you know, all the supposedly close races by a lot of points. It's that they win many close races. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Democrats do in fact gain control, I wouldn't be shocked if their majority is built on winning, say, 
half a dozen to a dozen seats by a point or two. And if those seats go the other way, that's why we have this margin of error, right? It's conceivable that Republicans sweep the board in those toss-up races, and they, in fact, do maintain control. And what do they call someone who wins a congressional race by one point? Um, Congress. Ryan Nobles. They call him Congressman, yeah, yeah, right? right? <laughs> you can win by one point or 15 points. That, still, yeah. that reminds me of an old story when my father would let me win at basketball, and I remember coming up one time up to the kitchen of my nana, and I was like, I beat him 32 to 31, and my nana said, a one-point win is as good as a 100-point win. That's right. A win is a win. That's right. true. So let's go uh, talk about some of these races. Uh, the first uh, race is going to be in New Jersey, uh, the 7th district there, the incumbent Republican Leonard Lance, who's not like very many Republicans that are running uh, in uh, 20. Uh, 18, we're 2018, right? I've lost. Uh, it, it it's almost election day. It's we're almost, almost there, right? 2018, yes. Hang in there. <laughs> Leonard Lance, he's running against the Democrat there, Tom Malinowski. Malinowski, Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights in the Obama administration. He was also a top official at Human Rights Watch. Now, this is why I say Lance isn't like a lot of Republicans running. He is a bona fide moderate in an era where there mm-hmm. are fewer and fewer moderates. He's someone that often speaks out. Uh, against uh, President Trump. He voted against both the Republican tax bill, saying it could hurt the residents of the state, and he also voted against the effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So we've given you all kinds of examples of Republicans who may not necessarily align with President Trump, but have yet been there to cast these key votes in his favor. Uh, this is not Leonard Lance. Uh, when it comes to fundraising, Malinowski has been out raising Lance. Before, Harry, you get to your forecast on this, Rebecca, I want to bring you in on this because. I wonder, I mean, it's almost as if this is the carbon copy example of it doesn't matter how much you oppose Donald Trump. If you are a Republican and you are in a district where Donald Trump is not very popular, uh, chances are voters are not going to be happy with you. That's right. Leonard Lance has done almost everything in his power to try to show that he is a Republican apart from the president. You mentioned his votes on health care and taxes. In spite of those votes, health care and taxes remain two of the top issues in this race uh, to Lance's disadvantage, the third top issue being President Trump. And there was an interesting quote from the director of Monmouth University polling on this race. Which is in New Jersey, right? In the Mm -hmm. race, exactly. Uh, And Patrick Murray, this director, said the choice for voters in this district seems to fall along the lines of whether they like their congressman more or dislike the president more. And so that's what this race is all about. New Jersey, of course, a state uh, that leans Democratic to begin with, uh, which is why you have Lance uh, acting, uh, legislating as a moderate, but Trump a huge, huge factor in this race. So, Harry, tell us, can Leonard Lance overcome the Trump shadow, run as his own man in this district, and and hold off the Democrat? Our forecast is that he will not. You know, we're talking about seats that you might look at, you know, to understand whether there's a wave, and I think this is one of them. Our forecast right now has Lance losing by two points, but close within the margin of error. But if Lance does, in fact, hold on, I think it foreshadows a good Republican evening. A few things I'll just point out about the district was, you know, Trump lost here by a point, which is not a very wide margin, but Obama lost this district twice when he won fairly handily nationwide. Mm -hmm. And the weighted average partisanship is plus seven GOP, but then take a look at these different demographics and it gives you an understanding that this is the type of place where Donald Trump's type of Republicanism doesn't play. 51% of those 25 years and older have a college degree in this district. It's only 14% rural it's really a suburban district, right? It's a well-educated suburban mm-hmm. district. If Democrats win here, I'd bet pretty heavily that they take back the House. 
this is about as close to a break-even district as you're going to find in the mm -hmm. country. And I, I'd be so interested to see how this goes because it seems that we're in an era where uh, uh, bipartisanship and, and moderate politics are just not rewarded by voters anymore. And if there were a place in the country where a, a, a politician might be rewarded for being independent, it might be here, right? Right. And we've seen districts where Republicans have been able to run successfully as moderates and carve out identities separate from the president. You look at Will Hurd in Texas mm -hmm. or Carlos Corbello in Florida. Uh, Obviously, it's just too much of a lift in this district, potentially. And, and then one last thing I'll add is that, you know, Will Hurd is someone who basically plastered the airwaves with the idea that he's opposing Trump on certain issues. You know, Lance is a quiet guy. Yeah, he doesn't have yeah. a lot of charisma. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, it's I go to Washington, I do my job, I vote the way of the district. But with Trump, as unpopular as he is in this particular district, it's not clear at this no, point. No. In fact, I bet against it being enough. Lance seems like a congressman of a different era, you know, the yes. kind of the citizen legislator who comes to Washington with the uh, suit and tie and does his work and goes back to his district. And, you know, he's not cutting fancy campaign ads or he's not uh, prolific on social media. That's not the kind of congressman he is. I, I would just add that this is part of a larger trend in New Jersey, right, where you had all these moderate Republicans either leaving or potentially getting kicked out. So you have MacArthur and the third, in the in the second, you have it looks like a Democratic takeover with Van Drew, Jeff Van Drew, uh, Mikey Sherrill up in the eleventh district. Uh, it looks to me like at the end of the evening there may only be one Republican congressman from the state of New Jersey. And I was looking back at the statistics, and let me just say that that hasn't happened in a very, 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 very long time. Mm -hmm. But you know, this is uh, to Harry's point. We are seeing this in some other parts of the country as well. You yeah. look at Southern California with Orange County, a very Republican area mm -hmm. of California traditionally, and it could be that Democrats are going extinct there as well. Just parts of the country becoming increasingly polarized, right. and then you're looking at, on the Senate side, uh, these Democrats in red states also potentially going extinct on election That's night. That's right. All right, let's move to Iowa's 4th District, which has all of the sudden become one of the most interesting races of the night. That's where we have the incumbent. Uh, somebody you've probably heard of, the Republican Steve King. Who dat? Facing <laughs> off against the Democrat uh, J.D. Scholten. I'm mean, obsessed with this race. Uh, and why wouldn't you be? I mean, exactly. King has uh, King has always been outspoken, I think would be uh, a fair way to uh, assess him and his career. But as of late, it's become, uh, it's gone to a new level. He's been using inflammatory language at times, especially when it comes to issues like immigration, race, anti-Semitism. Uh, last week, in fact, Steve Stivers, who's the chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, denounced King for what he called his comments, actions, and retweets following King's public support of white nationalist candidates and some racially offensive comments that he made. Uh, King has always kind of uh, been on the borderline of of uh, what you might describe as white nationalism or at, at the very least alt-right sentiments, but he really took it a, a step further uh, just in the last month or so. Now, Shulton is an interesting character as well, former minor league baseball player. He's new to politics. Uh, he has uh, positioned himself as a centrist on issues like gun control and abortion, which is probably essential to a Republican district like this. However, on health care, he has actually joined Bernie Sanders' call uh, for Medicare for All. You know, nobody ever thought that Steve King could lose this race, uh, but he is a, a campaign ad running uh, in Iowa's 4th District. Uh, Harry, is Steve King in trouble? 
Well, I'll tell you a few things. Number one, that campaign ad is recycled. At least one of them is recycled from his 2014 bit. I was just taking a look at that. So that's <laughs> You've fun. seen it before. Yes. I've seen that before. Maybe, maybe. Look, Steve King is the exact opposite of Leonard Lance, right? You know, very conservative, is a type of guy who shows a Confederate flag. And I'm always a little skeptical of those who show a Confederate flag overall, especially if they're in the North. Right. You know, it's yeah, one exactly. thing if you're in the right. South, it's right. another thing if you're in the North. Um, Look, our forecast still has Steve King winning by around 10 percentage points, but there's some polling that indicates that this race might be significantly I mean, I have to imagine that. there isn't that much polling in a race like this, right? I mean, people haven't been paying attention to right. it. Right. There's going to be some last-minute polls that's kind of drop in that right on the tip of the eve, right before everyone is sort of clicking their ballot box, mm-hmm. you will be able to see it. But, you know, this should not be a close race, right? Because, look, Trump won the district by 27 points. Uh, the weighted average partisanship of the district is plus 20 Republican. It's 48 percent rural, and only 23 percent of the population have a college degree. Look, Democrats would love to get this high, right? Getting rid of Steve King would be their dream. And a lot of Republicans, frankly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. Get right, we'll, we'll push him into a corner. Right. We'll come back next time. We'll get a Republican then. Um, I'm a little skeptical, but if the Democrats win here, you know they're having a good night. So this district is really a test right of our theory of candidates making a difference in these races. There are some races where voters are able to put partisanship aside for a really good candidate. And more than ever, any race that Steve King has had in the past, Shulton is a really good candidate candidate. I met him for the first time months ago. He was here in D.C. trying to make his case to national Democrats that they should support him. And since then, he has visited all 39 counties in this district three times. He's on the road constantly in his RV, Sioux City Sioux. Didn't I was you, able I to ride along RV, right? with yes, Corey yes. Booker. Mm-hmm. Um, Shulton's been obviously an attraction for a lot of these uh, national Democrats as well who might be running for president. Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. was out there. You mentioned his Medicare for All pitch. So ultimately, Shulton has been working hard. He's been hustling. uh, And even though the odds are stacked against him, he's been campaigning, raising a lot of money, whereas King has not been. King hasn't been raising money. Mm -hmm. He just went on air with his first ad of the election cycle this past week. He was in Europe like a month ago? He was in Europe during the August recess instead of back in the district Mm -hmm. campaigning. So he hasn't really been taking this seriously. And we've seen races before where incumbents don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And at the last minute, they're surprised. And so... That's why I'm kind of watching this one for an upset. And then, of course, there's this uh, social media uh, uh, video that went viral uh, from the great uh, Twitter handle, Iowa Starting Line. If you've never followed that and you care about presidential politics, Mm -hmm. Iowa Starting Line is one of the best blogs out there, run from a Democratic perspective, I should say, but... Uh, and where he just flips out on a reporter that asks him questions about some of these comments that he's made. What's interesting about Steve King is that even though he is a lightning rod, and even though there are a lot of people very upset with some of the things that he has said and done, there are still some very prominent Republicans who are not distancing themselves from him at all. The most obvious example being the current Republican governor there, Kim Reynolds. Mm -hmm. He's the co-chair of her campaign. He remains in that role. She has not spoken out against him. And then the other one out there is Ted Cruz. 
who uh, Steve King at one time was the co-chair of his presidential campaign. So that makes me wonder, like, even though uh, those of us in Washington are looking at this race as perhaps King could get knocked off, I would think like somebody like Ted Cruz is in a tight race against a progressive candidate, or does he just not want to get involved in something like that? Why, why get involved? Why get messy? But I want to jump back to something that Rebecca said, and that is that in wave election years, there's always going to be a race or two or three that's going to surprise you on election night, no matter right? What. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I go back to Iowa back in 2006, the last time there was a Democratic wave in a midterm election. Jim Leach was the longtime, much more moderate member of the House than Steve King was. Mm-hmm. But he got knocked off. I believe it's one of the few races, I think, ever in Cook political reports since 2006 that at the end was rated going for one party and actually went for the other. It wasn't even in the toss-up category. So these types of things happen. Surprises Mm -hmm. can happen in this race, or maybe it's Peter King to, you know, we'll we'll play the game with the same last name out on Long Island. Maybe that's a race. So you you don't know. And just to get really nerdy for one quick second, this will be the first election when they won't have straight ticket voting in Iowa. And so what J.D. Shulton has been pointing out to reporters like me visiting the district is that For the first time, Steve King's constituents will have to actively vote for him as opposed to just voting straight Republican. And And so he believes potentially that can make a difference on the margins. And you get the option of you know voting for Kim Reynolds and then voting for Shulton if you want. You can make that distinction. You always had that distinction, but now you actually have to physically go uh, and do it. All right, so Iowa Fourth. That's one to watch on election night as well. All right, let's go to Pennsylvania now, the 16th district there, uh, the Republican Mike Kelly uh, versus the Democrat Ron DiNicola. Obviously, Pennsylvania has been all up in the air because of uh, their redistricting. Their maps changed, and then they didn't change, and they changed back again. So that's caused some confusion. Uh, Dina Cola, a former Marine and a top amateur boxer. He's now a lawyer. Uh, Kelly attended Notre Dame on a football and academic scholarship and then later took over uh, his family's car dealership. Uh, Kelly's outraised Dina Cola by a pretty wide margin. Uh, he's got about $1.8 million bucks. Uh, Dina Cola only raised about a half a million. Uh, Harry, where do you see this race? You know, the, the, again, you speak about races that kind of came out of nowhere. There, you know, there's a recent poll here that actually had Dina Cola up. I'm not sure that's necessarily where we go. I mean, look, this is a very Republican district. Trump won here by 20. Uh, the WAP, the weighted average partisanship, is plus 14 Republican. Look, it's more rural than national average. It's wider than the national average. It has fewer adults with a college degree. Kelly is still forecasted to win here by seven. But there's some ancestral democraticness to the district, right? Registration's about equal. What part of the state is it in? It is Erie. So Erie. it is, it okay. is basically yep. from the Pittsburgh suburbs up sure. north to yeah. Erie. I grew up not far from there in the southwestern New York, That's so I know Erie very well. Yes. So, you know, maybe Erie's always, Erie County, you're always wondering, are you going to get the Bills games or the Steelers games? Exactly right, yeah. That's, that's how far north it is in right. northwest PA. Tom Ridge, former congressman from Erie, right? There you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look. If that poll that showed Dina Cola up is correct, then Democrats are probably in a stronger position nationally than we thought. I don't think it is. I still think Kelly holds on. But again, waves do strange things. This could be a district where a wave might hit. And Rebecca, if uh, Republicans lose here, it could be a really rough night in Pennsylvania for Republicans because yeah. their statewide ticket is in really rough shape. I right mean, now. Pennsylvania is likely to be one of the really good states on election night for Democrats overall. When you just think about how many seats are in play, um, I mean, they could rack up double digits in Pennsylvania easily. And part of this is, of course, the redistricting process. Mm-hmm that Pennsylvania went through this year, uh, this district became more competitive for Democrats after that process. And so uh, 
in retrospect, that was a really defining moment in this election cycle. And talk about that redistricting process. Has that made it more difficult to poll Pennsylvania? I mean, it went back and forth pretty much all summer. Yeah, I don't know if it's made it more difficult to poll. I mean, obviously, voters may be less sort of entrenched. They could also be confused, right? They could Mm -hmm. be. I mean, if the pollster's doing the job, you know, correctly, then they're mentioning the names on the ballot, you know, so on and so forth. But, yeah, I I would say, look, Democrats are going to have a really good night in Pennsylvania. They're going to win in the 5th, the 6th, the 7th. Rufus looks like he's going to get knocked off by Lamb in Pennsylvania 17. Mm -hmm. As Rebecca mentioned, statewide, governor's race, Senate race, double-digit wins for Democrats. This and New Jersey, you put them together, right? They're right next to each other. You could get potentially at least a third, if not more, of the net gains that are necessary for Democrats could come from these two states alone. But it's also pretty incredible that they're not competitive, that Republicans are not competitive at the statewide level, given the fact that President Trump just won there two years ago. And and not only that, but Lou Barletta, the former mayor of Hazleton, is a Trump Republican through and through. He was Trump before Trump was Trump. Mm And it's just, he's run into a buzzsaw. The Republican ticket has run into a buzzsaw in Pennsylvania. And I think, you know, this is one of the storylines I think will come out from election night if it plays out the way we think it's going to play out. And who knows, maybe it won't. Is the Democratic resurgence in the Midwest and maybe the Trump appeal that seemed to be apparent in 2016 was really just an anti-Clinton vote instead of a pro-Trump vote. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, go ahead, finish your thought. I was just going to say, anecdotally, this is what I keep hearing time and again from Midwestern voters who weren't enthusiastic about Donald Trump, but they were unenthusiastic about Hillary Clinton, so they voted for him. We interpreted that as oh my gosh, these working class Midwesterners are extremely pro-Trump. I think what we're seeing in this election cycle is that that was not the case. Yeah. Do you have Trump's numbers in Pennsylvania in front of you? Where is he right now? He is low. He is His approval rating is um, in the low 40s in Pennsylvania or in the high 30s, depending on the poll. You and he was so at. proud of winning Pennsylvania, too. So that's, I think, I think another... he's proud of all of his no, victories. That's true. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I just think Pennsylvania is so interesting because I feel like every presidential election cycle, you know, George Bush, remember, he made a late play for Pennsylvania was going to win Pennsylvania. Romney thought he was going to win Pennsylvania. And then Republicans never win it. Trump was actually the first Republican to do it in a very long time. And the fact that it would already cycle back two years later, I think, is one of the more interesting Mm -hmm. storylines in the 2018 race. All right. After the break, we're going to talk about how Joe Manchin is doing in coal country. That's really an intriguing race. And we'll go in depth on the Kansas governor's race. That's up next. Let's turn now to the Senate in West Virginia. The incumbent Democrat Joe Manchin fighting to keep his seat against the challenger Republican Patrick Morsi. Republicans really believe that this was a pickup opportunity for them. It may still be, but Manchin seems to be holding on. He's certainly a centrist. He's the only Democrat who voted for the Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. Morsi, the current state uh, attorney general, 
Healthcare, a huge issue in West Virginia. Manchin has been hammering this. It has the highest rate of people with pre-existing conditions in the country. Of course, uh, West Virginia also has a very serious opioid problem, which Manchin um, has uh, uh, tried to be a leader on, uh, and he's really kind of targeting those issues uh, that West Virginians care about and trying to remove himself from the national conversation. Uh, is it Has it been effective, Harry? Has Joe Manchin got a shot to hang on here in this race? I would say he's the clear favorite at this point. Uh, the forecast has him winning by high single digits. And look, this to me is another example, maybe not a recruiting disaster for the Republicans, but certainly an example where the primary electorate chose the wrong candidate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Patrick Morrissey's from freaking New Jersey. I mean, he has an accent that probably can rival mine, maybe. <laughs> they should have chosen Evan Jenkins from the third district, which is the- I'm not Don Blankenship? Don. <laughs> yeah, you forgot all about Don. <laughs> no, I, I was, if, they, if they had nominated Don Blankenship, I would have had a personal talk with each of the voters in that state saying, what are you doing? Cocaine Mitch. Yeah, there you're right, exactly. And McConnell ran with it, good for him. Mm-hmm. Any event, uh, look, Jenkins represented the third district district in West Virginia, which is the ancestrally most Democratic district in the state, but also swung the hardest towards Trump. That is where Manchin has historically run up these large margins. If Jenkins had been on the ballot, he might have been able to counteract that personal appeal that Manchin had in the state. And look, West Virginia is really now Republican. Yes, Democrats have a registration advantage, but Trump won here by 42 points. It's 51% rural, 94% white, only 20% of adults have a college degree. This is a state where if you had picked out at the beginning of the cycle and said, okay, where are the Republicans going to pick up a seat? I'm sure everyone had West Virginia circled on their map saying, we're going to go here and we're going to win. And in the final closing days of this campaign, it doesn't look like they're going to win. It looks like Joe Manchin's going to hold on. Mm-hmm. Big problem for Republicans. But this, I mean, at this point, it's essentially on par with Doug Jones representing Alabama. It is just so Republican in West Virginia. But Manchin has carved out an identity for himself apart from his party. And you mentioned health care. Morrissey is one of two candidates for whom this is a really big issue because he, as attorney general, signed on to the ACA lawsuit. The other one is Josh Hawley Mm -hmm. in Missouri. Uh, And so it's been so easy for Democrats to say he wants to take away your pre-existing conditions coverage. He wants to take away your health care coverage. Just Republicans drop the ball on this one. Which is also pretty incredible because Donald Trump, to a certain extent, seems to be obsessed with West Virginia. Uh, He's traveled to this state multiple times uh, in the first two years of his presidency. He's personally invested in Patrick Morsi as a candidate. I think he's going to be there one more time before uh, the vote takes place on Tuesday. Uh, You know, we're going to see a lot of Donald Trump and his allies attempting to spin the election results on Wednesday morning, uh, saying that if it weren't for Donald Trump, the losses may have been much bigger. I don't see, Rebecca, how he escapes what happened here in West Virginia and it, it take at least partial responsibility for this because he has been heavily invested here. Except Donald Trump doesn't take he responsibility right, exactly. or take blame. He <laughs> only wanna, takes credit. I want to plant the flag on that point before whatever ex- uh, excuse they're going to use the day after because he's clearly been invested here. Right. And Republicans have been invested on the whole, and they've invested a lot of money that they could have spent in other states, uh, which is not nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you you know, depending on what happens in states like Nevada and Arizona on election night, if, you know, Democrats hang on in a state like Missouri, that money could be important. Yeah. 
one last thing I'll point out here, and that is that Manchin has struggled to get to 50% in a number of these polls. Now, I'm not a big believer in what is called the 50% rule, right? If the incumbent's below 50%, then chances are most of the voters in that district or in that state will go against so said incumbent in the final days. I'm not a believer in that. It's not really tested that well. But I will say that in a state like West Virginia that's so heavily pro-Trump, that the fact that there's still those undecideds, maybe they don't like Morrissey that much, Maybe they like Manchin, but maybe they'll get yanked to the right just a little bit at the end. So this race isn't tied together nicely with a bow on top. Manchin still has a shot of losing, but he is favored. And I think Democrats will definitely take the seat, even if some liberal activists don't necessarily love Joe Manchin. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's go to Kansas now and take a look at the governor's race there. The matchup is Democrat Laura Kelly. She's running against the Republican Chris Kobach. This race got off to uh, a very unpredictable start when the incumbent governor there, Jeff Collier, uh, became governor when then uh, Governor Sam Brownback resigned to take an ambassador position in the Trump administration. Now, Collier ran for a full term, but he was defeated in the primary by Kobach. And what was very intriguing about that particular situation was that Donald Trump and every advisor had told him to stay out of this primary. And in the last, I think it was 48 hours of this primary, he tweeted his support for Kobach, who he and Kobach have a very close relationship. And this race ended up being the primary was within a a couple thousand votes, correct? It was somewhere in that range. There there Mm -hmm. were talks of a recount, of course, with then Kobach being the secretary of state. It was was very. What was exactly going on there? I think, uh, you know, we can get into this a little bit, but Democrats caught a major break with Kobach being the Republican nominee. Right. And of course, Mm -hmm. Kobach is super controversial. He is the Secretary of State, but following the 2016 election, he was handpicked by President Trump to lead an election integrity commission, which was designed to essentially investigate voter fraud. That commission really did not deliver any type of results. There was nothing tangible that they could point to uh, for his work. Um, uh, Kobach, also a hardliner on immigration um, and really a a clone of Trump in many ways. Kelly, meanwhile, a state senator uh, and does have pretty good name recognition in Kansas. what are uh, Chris Kobach's chances at this point, Harry? Well, you know, normally if you told me there was a Republican running in the great state of Kansas, I would say that Republican is going to win. But Kobach is much more unpopular than the average Republican in that state. His favorable ratings are underwater. That is, his unfavorables vastly outrun his favorable ratings. Right now, if you're looking at the polls, I think the best estimate is a very, very tight race. But Kelly, the Democrat, to me, looks like she is, in fact, slightly, slightly favored, maybe by a point if you're looking at the forecast that we put together that includes the polls. But it's really, really close. I'll add one thing, you know, here, and that is Greg Orman, the independent. You might remember him back from 2014. Mm -hmm. He ran as an independent for the Senate, basically knocked the Democratic candidate out of the race. The Democrats rallied behind Orman. Not the case here. He is still pulling 9% of the vote. It's not clear who he's pulling from more. I will say his treasurer um, resigned from the campaign and backed Laura Kelly, the Democratic candidate. So, you know, just a really tight, close race. And I'm not necessarily sure which way it's going to go. But here, perhaps, is if you're looking for one little marker about which way it's leaning, Nancy Kassenbaum, who's the longtime Republican senator from that state, the daughter of Alf Landon, who ran as the Republican nominee for President Holloway back in 1936. She is backing Kelly, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate. So in a state where you basically have three parties, a moderate Republican Party, a conservative Republican Party, 
and the Democratic Party. It looks like some of those moderate Republicans are shifting towards the Democrat nominee. So interesting. And I don't think we should fail to mention the impact that former Governor Sam Brownback is having Absolutely. on this race. Democrats talking about it constantly, trying to tie Kobach to him. And Kobach didn't do himself any favors recently in a debate. All of the candidates were asked, do you think Brownback was a good governor. Only Kobach raised his hand. Raise your hand if you thought uh, Sam Brownback was a good governor. Just a terrible visual at the worst possible time. And he kind of like half rose his hand and then finally just rose his hand. It was just weird. Yes, yes. And so that is a huge deal in this race. Absolutely. Local issue. Absolutely. Sam Brownback left office with an approval rating in the low to mid-20s. And this is a similar dynamic that you actually see playing out in Oklahoma as well, where Mary Fallon's leaving office with, again, a very, very low approval rating, which gives Democrats an opportunity, Drew Edmondson in that case, a chance to win in a state that you normally wouldn't expect them to be competitive in in this day and age. But how crazy that voter ID has become kind of a sleeper issue in so many of these statewide races. You look at the Georgia governor's race, obviously. It's a huge part of that contest as well. But here in Kansas with Kobach and his uh, election integrity Integrity commission, commission. (laughs) um, that also, I mean, um, I would not have expected at the beginning of this election cycle to be talking about voter access voter ID as much as we've been talking about. And Sam Brownback is just an interesting political story from start to finish. I mean, he was uh, an enormously popular senator when he was uh, in Kansas, had a very short-lived run for president, and then went to Kansas with this idea of turning Kansas into this conservative incubator of, uh, you know, instituting these tax cut policies that were going to lead to great economic growth, and that was uh, essentially going to launch his presidential campaign, and it certainly didn't turn out that way. Didn't quite incubate. (laughs) No. All right, so this is our last episode before Election Day, unless our producer Amy Eason wakes us up uh, late Monday night and forces us to do one more. Uh, But we are going to take a few minutes to talk through some of the things that we'll be watching for Tuesday night, some of the possible outcomes that we're keeping our eyes on. These are things that maybe might be a little bit under the radar that you aren't thinking about. So when you you settle in to watch CNN's live election coverage with our team and uh, everybody spread out around the country, just keep these things in the back of your mind. Harry? Yeah, so I think that the number one thing that I'm trying to brace myself for is that Election night may only be the start of the finish line, not the end of it. So you know, <laughs> that it, sounds scary, Harry. It, it sounds scary. I want that sleep so bad I can taste it. But keep this in mind. It could take days to weeks to count the ballots in the California House races that we've all been watching mm-hmm. because, you know, there are a lot of mail-in ballots in that particular state and a lot of close races. We may not be able to call a winner there. Uh, Washington's 8th District with Dino Rossi, the Republican, trying to, finally trying to beat Kim Schreier. Um, Main second district, which we spoke about in the prior um, podcast, which could go to an instant runoff, and it took six days to count those ballots back in the primary. Uh, Georgia, the marquee governor's race, could go to a runoff if neither Stacey Abrams nor Brian Kemp reach 50% of the vote plus one. So that would take place in December. Here's the weirdest one. The Mississippi special Senate race, right? It looks probable that we'll have a runoff in that race. It looks like it's most likely going to be Democrat Mike Gespi and Republican Sidney Hyde-Smith. Hyde-Smith would be heavily favored in that runoff to take place in late November. But, but it could be the case where we have 50 Democrats, 49 Republicans, and then this race determining who gets control. So we might not be able to officially call anything oh, right. until late November, even though we know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the little, little extra dig... Let's just say Chris McDaniel, the other Republican, gets another runoff with Mike Espy. 
that would turn into a real race really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And could you imagine yeah. if we're hanging out around Thanksgiving time in Mississippi <laughs> to figure out who's controlling the United States Senate? Alabama special all over again. <laughs> Fun. You know, why not? We like the South. <laughs> we do. So, Rebecca, what are you going to be looking for? So, for me, one of the big wild cards on election night will be minority turnout. And we've been talking about this all election cycle. What will we see in terms of the African-American vote, the Latino vote? And for Democrats, this is going to be the key in some of their major statewide races. You look at the Missouri Senate race, for example, Claire McCaskill will be counting on African-American turnout in Kansas City and St. Louis in particular. Uh, you look at the Florida Senate or the Florida governor's race, African-American turnout could be huge for Gillum. Could and be huge for Nelson, too. It could right. be yeah. huge for yeah. Nelson, yeah. too. Yeah. And then you look at states like Arizona and Nevada, Democrats could get a huge boost if Latinos are turning out to vote. Texas as well with Beto O'Rourke, uh, obviously a long shot, but nevertheless, uh, if we see a much greater turnout than what we would usually expect in a midterm election from African-American and Latino voters. This could be an exceptionally good election night for Democrats. If it's what we would normally expect, maybe a better than expected night for Republicans. And probably something we haven't really seen on full display since Barack Obama's name was on a That's ballot. right. And it's worth remembering that even when Barack Obama was president in those midterm elections, I think of 2014 as a really good example, um, and Kay Hagan's race in North Carolina, mm -hmm. she was hoping that Barack Obama could help turn out African-American voters in North Carolina. And she didn't make it across the finish line. Tillis won that race. Right. And so um, we could see the same this election cycle. She made it across the finish line. She just made it across the In second. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I guess that's right. <laughs> and then finally, the thing I'm going to be looking for, uh, and please don't cringe when you hear this, but I am looking to see how many potential 2020 candidates oh, God. emerge from 2018. And I know that seems ridiculous. 2020 does start the day after the election. The day after, day. right. But, I, I, you know, uh, I think when you look at the Democratic landscape right now, they have so many candidates already, but none of them seem to have captured the imagination of Democratic voters. And it's going to require uh, some sort of transcendent candidate to, to take on Donald Trump that can really coalesce this fractured Democratic base in many ways. And could there be a candidate whose name is on the ballot in 2018 who fits that billing? Andrew Gillum, maybe, in Florida? He would tell you, don't even think about that. Could it be Stacey Abrams in Georgia? Could it maybe be Beto O'Rourke, the electoral Jesus uh, in Texas? Uh, excuse me, it's electoral Jesus. Jesus. Oh, that's right. That's Please. Right. So I know that seems like a long shot, but keep in mind, you know, there have been candidates with relatively thin resumes who have gone on to be their party's nominee and then perhaps even president. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. And if you take someone like if Stacey Abrams, for instance, if she becomes the governor of Georgia, a, a very red state, how does she not become at least an important player in the conversation as to who the next uh, Democratic nominee for president is? But consider this. It could be better for someone like Stacey Abrams or Beto O'Rourke to lose on election night because some voters might feel a little offended. Right. If you win a very tough election, you made all of these promises, and then you're you piecing right out yeah. going to run for president. That's possible. Right, away. right, right. So maybe that's Beto's path to the presidency, which is Harry's going to, that's going to be the title of your book, right? Beto's path to the presidency? Uh, not only is that the title of my book, but the forward to that book will be, in fact, written by Electoral Jesus. <laughs> wow. Can't wait. All right, time for our final trivia. 
uh, before election day. I will point out that I am the current champion of trivia. This is just mortifying every single time. I know. It's, for me. It's actually very uh, humbling to <laughs> try and attempt to answer Harry's trivia questions. Harry, what do you got for us? All right. We are going to go into polling. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Did you say Poland or Poling? We're going to go into Poland. No, we're going into Poling. Oh, I thought you said Poland. I know all the, some total of one politician from Poland, Lach Walenza, and that's it. I couldn't answer any trivia about him, but he's the only Polish politician. We can't even get the domestic with. politics question. Exactly. All right. Hit us Poling. with Poling. Okay. The only presidential election in the post-war era, post-World War II era, mm-hmm in which one candidate held a double-digit lead in every single national poll conducted of the race. Every single one. They held at least a double-digit lead. So let me repeat that. Only pres- the only presidential election in the post-World War II era in which one candidate held a double-digit lead in every single national poll conducted of the race. I'm going to say that was Ronald Reagan, 84, against Mondale. Oh, that's a good guess. Harry looks skeptical, though. I can already tell the look on his face. No, I just got—I just have an itch on my throat that I'm scratching. <laughs> Double digits. Oh. Because Reagan won. Didn't he win, like, 49 states? He won 84? 49 states except yeah. for Minnesota, which Fritz was... Mondale's home state, right. which Mondale won by less than a point. Right, yeah. But, you know, at least Mondale can always claim he scored a blowout in the District of Columbia. That's true. <laughs> which has no electoral votes. <laughs> Has three. <laughs> All right, so I've, I'm just going to embarrass myself if I guess. So let's just hear the answer. <laughs> well, we're going to have to go to round two because round one was not answered correctly. We had one no guess and one bad guess. A <laughs> bad? That was a good guess. Walter Mondale was basically even with Reagan at the beginning of that campaign because you were coming out of that recession, right? It was okay. only then you got that boost. Right. The correct answer was the 1964 campaign where Lyndon Baines Johnson crushed. Wow. Uh, Barry Goldboard, remember that was mm-hmm. after the JFK assassination. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He led a lot going in and so on and so forth. I was, I was thinking LBJ was would have been my second guess, just so you know. Do I get any credit for that? No. Okay. All right, what's question number two? Okay, let's see if I have a question number two. This is a tough one. Name the last person to win two U.S. Senate elections on the same day. One for a full term and the other a simultaneous election for the final weeks of an unexpired term. Let me repeat the question, and then we can talk it through together. <laughs> Name the last person to win two U.S. Senate elections on the same day. Oh, my god! One for a full term, and the other a simultaneous election for the final few weeks of an unexpired term. So the nice thing about co-hosting this podcast with Harry is that I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but now I do know them after he tells us. We're, we're really next all time, here to learn. Yeah, the next time I'm at a cocktail party, it's I can school time. smarter. <laughs> it's school time, boys and girls. <laughs> so I, I, I so let's I, just think about this through. Can you give us like some sort of a hint? Yeah, like I can give year? you a hint. It happened in the last 10 years. Okay. And just think about people who might have been elevated to higher positions. Okay. all right. And therefore, they had to resign their seat. There was an appointed incumbent. Mm -hmm. And then that person perhaps resigned or didn't run for the full term. And therefore, it happened right on the edge of when the next full term would start. So you had to have an election for both 
the right. special election okay. as so well as for the full term. Maybe it was appointed to a cabinet post or something like that. Appointed, or, yeah, something, something yeah. along those lines mm -hmm. where they were somehow elevated to higher office. Right. Hmm. The last 10 years. This is the Senate we're talking about, right? Yeah. So who were people who were United States senators? Right. Who the, Right. No, so oh, that I maybe don't think it was Tim Scott. To, I'm going to say, oh, no. Okay, Scott was in the was Scott was in the house. Right. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Okay. So the, the house. Yes. Um, who took Barack Obama's place in the Senate? Uh, oh, it's someone who's no longer a senator. Uh, this person, I will say, is no longer a United States senator. Oh. So okay. that's a, that's a huge, huge, huge hint. Somebody who took Joe Biden's seat. The person was um, Ted Kaufman who took Joe Biden's seat. But remember, we're looking yeah, for the person he was, who won because he didn't run again, right? Didn't he hold? Didn't he, 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 he did not he held the seat. He then. did not run again. Um, but we're looking. We're looking for the person who ran and won both the simultaneous special and the full term. Yeah. I feel like we need a whole extra hour. For this. <laughs> Is it? Is it the, I can't, who took Obama's seat when he became president? So, uh, is it Tammy, Tammy Duckworth? No, no, but you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. Ryan's actually right here. It's Illinois. It yeah. is Illinois. Remember, Roland Burris was appointed. Roland Burris. But it's right. not Burris. But it wasn't Burris. It yeah. wasn't Burris. Burris got appointed under a, a shadowy cloud with a right. Rod Bogoyevich. Bogoyevich, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the person who ran and won that special election and the simultaneous regular election was Mark Kirk. Oh. oh. And Mark Kirk, of course, was then defeated for re-election in 2016 right. by Tammy by Duckworth. Tammy Duckworth, by Tammy Duckworth. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I knew I knew I knew that's where you were going but I couldn't remember I mean that's like a very slim period of time where Kirk was in that spot because he had the Burris thing and then Kirk and then he lost right away because I'm thinking Illinois I'm thinking yeah. Duckworth and and Durbin but I know it's not Durbin but Duckworth didn't seem right to me so that was a really hard question Harry Harry's just beating us over the head with trivia every single week. <laughs> we're going to have a we're gonna, we're, I think we should have a trivia show. You can come be a guest questioner on that, and you'll see some real nerds in action. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. Okay, that does it for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is the last time we're going to get the chance to talk to you before Election Day, but we will have a post-election wrap-up episode that will come sometime later this week. So the best way to make sure that you hear that episode is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, wherever you find your favorite podcast, you can find us and you can subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. And this is how it works. You'd have to leave us a five out of five, correct? Is that the standard, Harry? Yes, five out of five, but then you can be critical in the comments. So section. savage us, say whatever you want to say in the review section, but just make sure you hit mm -hmm. five out of five. That actually helps new listeners find the show. And then please go on uh, social media, go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever your favorite social media outlet is, and tell people about our podcast. Tell them to, to listen uh, so that they can join in on the fun. And, of course, you can always find us on Twitter. That's where you can send your feedback or your questions. You can also see our sarcastic and sometimes witty comments about the campaign. Also, Twitter is a good place to find Rebecca and I because we're going to be somewhere fun on election night. That is right. I'll be in Tallahassee with Andrew Gillum. Uh, Rebecca is going to be in Missouri with Josh Hawley's campaign. Uh, I'm on uh, social media, at both Instagram and Twitter, Ryan Nobles with one N. And Rebecca? I'm Rebecca G. Berg. Stands for Geraldo. Geraldo. That's right. Little known fact. <laughs> Rebecca Geraldo Berg. 
And I'm Harry Josiah Enton. No, and I'm at Forecaster Enton on your Twitter handle. And this is The Forecast with Harry Enton. And special thanks to our producers, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski, particularly for putting up with us. Uh, they deserve all the awards for that. And we will see you right back here after the election. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.